This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. I don't want to do an intro to this episode of In the Arena. I was introduced to Cat Hoke by Seth Godin, and I want her to tell her story, so we're not going to delay this at all with any kind of an intro. In the Arena with Cat Hoke. Cat Hoke, how are you? I'm awesome, Anthony. How are you? You are awesome. I always say I'm wonderful, but I'd, I, I would be awesome too. Awesome's pretty good. <laughs> let's let's tell people what Defy Ventures is and what you do. Sure. At Defy Ventures, we transform hustle of people with criminal histories. We work with men, women, and youth. And the big idea behind Defy is that many prison cells are filled with natural-born hustlers who have been selling everything. It started off with like gumballs as little kids and then they sold drugs and then they were incarcerated. And even while they're in prison, they're still illegally hustling things. So what would happen if we transformed all that hustle into legal entrepreneurship? So we're a nonprofit organization. We're national. We currently serve in five states and I hope that we get to your great state of Ohio, maybe this year or next. And we provide an entrepreneurship training program, character development. It's holistic. We teach parenting and etiquette and technology, everything to prepare them for successful release. And then after they get out of prison, we provide employment and we we get them in jobs. And uh, we have an incubator. So we incubate and finance their companies. And we have a 3.2% recidivism rate. 3.2. Yes. That's amazing. Thanks. And and w- it's about, awesome. Well, we're going to talk about what you attribute that to, but reading your new book, I think a big part of it is character. I mean, the character traits. I think that is a huge part of it. And I want to talk about a couple things, and we'll get into that. But I, I want you to walk me through the exercise that you make the entrepreneurs in trainings and the volunteers do when you have them together in a room, and there's a line between them, and one half is on one side. So the people who are convicted of crimes inside a penitentiary are on one side of the line, and the people that are going to be helping them as volunteers are on another side of the line. And what's most interesting to me about this is what the people who are not convicts learn about themselves. So can you describe that exercise for me and what people learn about themselves? Sure. And I will say, if, if you don't mind, I will slightly correct you here and say, instead of calling them convicts, if we can just call them people with people. criminal histories. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's people who have been caught, basically. So, and this well, exercise shows precisely that, that nearly all of us have done criminal things, but most of us haven't been busted for them. So at Defy, we recruit top CEOs and venture capitalists and professionals. We have 4,400 of them. If you come with me, then you'll be on, on that side of the line. And we have about 100 volunteers most who are very professionally accomplished and then the guys are on the other side and then you step to the line if the statement is true so step to the line 
if well, I'm going to do it a different way for the sake of the podcast. So you're, sure. you're, maybe your your listeners can visualize this better. I do this at speaking engagements. I say, stand up, everybody, stand up on your feet, and then I'll say, sit down if you've never done anything you're ashamed of ever <laughs> in your life. Right. So nobody's sitting down. Think back to by the time you were 23 years old, if you never did anything really, really stupid that you deeply regret, sit down. Everyone's still standing. Then I say, sit down if you have never in your life done anything criminal. But before you take a seat, like all these people start to take a seat, like before you take a seat, keep in mind that getting in a car after drinking one too many is a crime. Holding the weed before you smoke it, at least in most states up until recently, has been a crime. And there are a lot of people in prison for that. Trespassing on a property that isn't yours, even if you are teeping as a teenager, is a crime. So pretty much then everybody's still standing. There's like 1% of the I'm audience that standing. is goody two-shoes. Yeah, I bet you are. Standing, yeah. Or, yeah, so, well, sure why would you say, standing. I bet yeah, you yeah, are? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought you were. I thought you... <laughs> so then I say... Now think back to your childhood, and if you've never done anything violent in your entire life, sit down. But before you do, consider that anything violent, even back to your childhood, includes pulling your sister's hair, pushing a boy who was picking on you, punching someone in a park, anything like that is violent. And so typically, uh, at that point, 70 to 80% of the audience is still standing. And this applies at the line in prison too, but I'm helping you to visualize it right now if you're by yourself. So I tell the people who are standing, if you're standing right now, you are what politicians would call a violent offender. If you had been caught, you would be called a violent criminal, the kind that other people think is not redeemable. And when I do that at audiences, I say, okay, like a bunch of you are rolling your eyes at me right now because you think that I'm being stupid about it. Like, yeah, maybe you just like wrestled with your sister or like hit your sisters or brother or something like that. But what you may not realize is that 25% of the people that I work with were first incarcerated by the age of 10 for these very crimes. Mm -hmm. Crimes. We call these crimes. Like things that rich white kids get a timeout for, maybe they get a timeout for it. And if you don't have the resources, if you're a person of color, you're just a lot less likely to encounter justice than you are if you're rich and white and can talk your way out of just about anything. And so once you go to prison the first time, 80% of them almost return to the criminal justice system. And it's like people, we say that we're the land of second chances, but a lot of times we don't act that way because when you go to prison, you feel like you have no options when you get out because no one wants to hire you. So, But the, the, like the, many things, the second chances aren't distributed equally. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So in the step to the line exercise, we go through a whole series of questions like step to the line if you heard gunshots in your neighborhood growing up and none of our volunteers or very few of our volunteers are at the line, but all of our... EITs are at the line. Step to the line if someone in your family has was murdered. And shockingly, about half of our EITs, that stands for entrepreneurs in training, are at the line. That's amazing. I'm still standing up, though, even after all those questions. And when I was right, right about 18, I think my sister's boyfriend pushed her and I assaulted him with a weapon. I mean, I had a stick and I at first I hit him, but he's so much bigger and stronger than me. I ended up with a concussion and a busted nose and a busted lip. And I ended up chasing him down the street while he drove away in his car because I, he was exhausted from beating the shit out of me. So that was it. But that would have been a, a violent offense, right? Yeah. I mean, you could have gotten even <clears throat> attempted murder with a deadly weapon for that. 
you know, especially if you don't have the money to pay for an attorney who who gets you off the hook for that. And most people would say, you know, a lot a lot of these crimes, you could say that what you did right there, why wouldn't you do that? You know, I have a graduate, her name is Sharon, and I talk about her in, in my book, A Second Chance, and she did 20 years on a murder charge. And she was in an abusive relationship. And when she found out that her boyfriend was molesting her seven-year-old daughter, she had him murdered. And I don't make excuses for the bad decisions that my graduates made. They all made bad decisions. And there is an alternative to violence every single time. We don't need to do that. But if you hear a lot of the other stories of how this stuff came about, sometimes the way that we write people off and label them is... The, um, we're going to get to that because there's a yeah. lot of it in the book. And I know some of this stuff intuitively. And I, I want to talk about compassion. And I, I want to talk about understanding some of this stuff. I had a question here where I was going to ask you. Well, let me just stick with that. So what the volunteers learn about themselves is that they're not very different from someone who is convicted, except for a couple things. One, they weren't convicted of a crime. Okay, so that's number one. And number two, their life circumstances don't match up very neatly with the life circumstances with somebody who's behind bars. So I want to get to this because I think it's probably one of the most important points in the book for me and my reading. You say the Defy program is not a second chance. It's actually a first chance for the participants because they never had a first chance. So I want to ask you a couple questions about this. First, I want you to recall, if you can, when you realized your lack of compassion for people who had been convicted of a crime, because at one point you were part of what I would call the dirt nap jurisdiction, right? Like everybody dies, bury them. I don't want to hear another word about them. They're criminals. And yep. you you had an epiphany and something changed for you where you realized that, wait a second, I might not be that different than these people. And then if you can bounce off of that, I, I want you to share your ideas about the role of luck in the circumstances of your birth as it pertains sure. to the likelihood of you ending up in prison for anything. Sure. So up until the age of 26, I prided myself as being tough on crime. And my ideas, I'm ashamed to say this, but I'm just say it out loud. My ideas on being tough on crime were tougher than Jeff Sessions' ideas <laughs> on being tough on crime. I had zero compassion, zero empathy, zero mercy, People who hurt people should rot and die in that place, and who cares? And that all came from an experience of one. When I was 12, a good friend of mine was brutally murdered by two 16-year-old boys, and I thought that they should – That I wanted revenge. Right. And I think that's a, the most normal response, and I understand it. So today, I wouldn't say I'm soft on crime. I would just say that 95% of people who go to prison end up coming back out. So what kind of neighbor do you want? Do you want one who's been rehabilitated or is someone who goes to prison? And it's essentially criminal university where you learn how to become better at crime and you give up hope and then you get out and you go back to the only thing that you know. So I think it's supposed to be rehabilitation, not just punishment. And I, I recognize that now, but it took me a long time to realize that. Well, what's interesting about the criminal university is that you have a, an interesting comment in your book about how good of entrepreneurs criminals are, and it's true. And when you look at a drug dealer with a $2 million business, that's actually a large business for an entrepreneur to have a, a $2 million enterprise. That's a big business, and it's a complicated business, and they actually have a business structure that looks very much like McDonald's in the way that it runs. 
minus the one thing, which is the risk mitigation, which you point out. And so when you go into prison and you're being counseled on how to be a better criminal, you're learning from the people who are actually got caught and who also don't have a great concept of risk mitigation. But other than that, they do have an entrepreneurial spirit and they do have a hustle and they do are they are trying to make money and they are trying to do something. Tell me about the role of luck and circumstances of your birth. There are so many stories in the book. I mean, that when you read them, if you're not moved, you're missing something. I mean, you, you, you can't not be moved when you hear these stories, but just generalize because, but for the circumstances of your birth, right? You right. could have ended up in the situation that many of the people in this book ended up in that were really the impetus for certain decisions that caused them to end up choosing the path that they chose. Right. So share some of that. I will share them. I just want to say this first. All the circumstances that I'm about to share are not to evoke pity. Right. I hate pity. Pity hurts people. It's not to take anyone off the hook either because the people I serve have made grave mistakes. They know that. They have remorse for them. We do this so that we have empathy to understand where their decisions came from, why they made those decisions, and how we can make sure that they don't happen again. But for people who are listening right now, they might realize that, yeah, if I had been raised in those circumstances, there's a good chance that I would end up coming up in that too. So going back to step to the line. Step to the line, if you had a parent who tucked you into bed nearly every night and told you that they loved you, Almost none of our guys are at the line on that. Almost all of our volunteers are. Most of our EITs, our entrepreneurs in training, grew up in a single parent household in the foster care system or being adopted. Almost all of them did not know their dads or wish they had not known their dads. 90% of them were abused. Many of them were sexually abused. Most of them were physically violently abused. Nearly all of them were abandoned. Their role models were drug dealers and gang leaders. And by the age of 11 or 12, nearly all of them were engaging in criminal activity because that's what everybody did. And they didn't want to go to prison. No one really wants to go to prison, but you know that when you do, it's your rite of passage. It's sort of like taking your SAT and going to college. And then prison is glorified in many of the communities where we serve. So they know that they're probably going to end up there at some point. They try to do what they can to not get caught. Joining a gang is a fatherhood replacement vehicle. Since they didn't have dads, people are looking for protection. They're looking for community, for a sense of belonging, and they're looking for financial provision because they they didn't have that. Most of our EIT's mothers were around, but many of them were drug addicts, or they were holding down two or three jobs at a time, and so they weren't able to properly parent our EIT's. So, Nearly all of them come out of highly dysfunctional families, and they had role models that led them into this lifestyle. And I I think that is a big part of circumstances in your birth. And I, I do think that it is not to make excuses and say they couldn't have made other choices. And we're not depriving them of having the ability to make that choice. I just think it's difficult for people to understand that in the same circumstances, the decisions that you would have made may be different than the decisions that you think you would have made not having been in those experiences. 
and not exactly. having not having to live in that level of fear, not knowing whether or not you were going to be safe. And I, I know uh, a lot of people that have come from these circumstances. And I grew up in an apartment complex with a single mom, surrounded by other kids with single moms. And I know that there's different choices that other people made because I watched them make it and made some of those choices with them when I was you know, 13 and 14 and 15 years old. And so I, I just think that there's a certain belief structure that you have because you think I wouldn't do that because you had the kind of life that you had. If you had a different life, you would have been very, very likely to have the same choices in front of you and you would have been very likely to take the same path. Right. When you when you grew up in a neighborhood where you hear gunshots every single day and then your brother gets murdered by the rival gang or your father or your cousin, and this is going on all, all around you, you are radicalized. You join a gang. A lot of times you don't even really have much of a choice. Like it's just what you do. You are trained to do that. Or you're on your own. I mean, you're you're alone and you're afraid. Then you're at greater risk by not being part you, of it. Exactly. Being on your own doesn't always work out all that N- well for people. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Your dad made you play Shark Tank growing up at the dinner table. <laughs> yeah, a version of it. I didn't know I was in a Shark Tank, but yes, basically. What yeah. impact did that have on you and your deep belief in yourself and your ability to not need permission to do things? So my dad taught me to not be a whiner and a complainer. And when I saw a problem, he said, instead of complaining, what are you going to do to fix it? invent something to fix it. And I think one of the greatest gifts that my dad gave me was that when I came up with an idea, although I'm sure that he was like laughing his ass off about it later, he never told me that my idea was stupid. He just kept helping me to like vet it and take it to the next. How does that work? How's that going to happen? Like, where are you going to find the supply for that? How are you going to market it? How are you going to price it? And so I think growing up, I probably had an artificially high self-esteem them thinking that I could do anything that I wanted to do. And I believed that I could solve problems. I, I believed that I had the power to see a problem and come up with an innovative solution and that people would buy into it. And so far, it's working so out far, fine, so right? Good. Yeah, so far, so good. <laughs> yeah, I had, uh, I had parents in a very much the same way who never told me that there was anything I couldn't do. And yeah. so at 17, I started a hard rock band. At 21, I decided to move to L.A. to front a hair metal band. And my mom used to cut out motivational quotes from Reader's Digest and send them to me. You know, it was like, do whatever yeah. you're going to do. Just go be great at it, whatever it is. It's different experience than a lot of people, though, that you're interacting with who are in the IT program. They, yeah. didn't, they didn't have that person that believed in them or that told them that they were something. Well, not only do they not have someone believing in them, they a lot of times didn't have anyone at all, like they were completely abandoned, or they were just straight up abused or neglected. So, and you know, a lot of parents that have great intentions for their kids now, I see them trying to spare their kids trouble by telling them how to not fail instead of allowing their kid to experiment a little bit and experience a little bit of failure on their own. And I wasn't spared from that. I I had the opportunity to fail a lot really early in life with my stupid little ideas. And that's okay because I got myself back up. I was encouraged to get back up and just try again. So yeah, our our guys certainly did not have that kind of network. They had a a different kind of support and different kind of role models that reinforced different kinds of values. I had those same role models. I grew up without a dad, so I had that same kind of role model. You find adult male role models when you're a young man because you need that. 
even if it doesn't serve you. What kept you from going to prison or going down that path? Rock and roll. Predominantly, I found something that I loved so much that I was willing to give up everything else to have it. Uh, and, and, yep. and that's what it was. I found something or it found me. I think yeah. it found me. That's actually what I say is that a positive legal vision is the number one thing that people need. If if we don't believe that our future can be better than our past, then why even try? So you found something that you thought that was fulfilling to you, and I guess you were doing it legally. It was, I mean, most everything was legal for sure. I, I'm, I'm not going to say that. I, I told you I'm still standing up. I didn't sit down at anything yeah. that you said. So we're, uh, we'll make that clear. But I'm telling those stories later in my life, not right now. All right, deal. But, but yeah, I'm still, I would still be standing up for sure. And yeah. I, there was playing rock and roll in a band. I mean, I guess certainly we were breaking the law. We, when I was 17, we were playing at bars in exchange for a case of beer. You know, yeah. And we're not even allowed to be in the bar, yet alone we're, yeah. we're playing in the bar, and the bar owner's giving us a case of beer to show up. And we thought that was the greatest deal on earth, not recognizing everybody else was getting paid, but we learned that later on. You are such a hardened criminal, I can't believe it. <laughs> I'm leaving a lot of things out, but that's that's for a later <laughs> time, Kat, or maybe All sometime right. over dinner in Boulder or somewhere else. Or I will Ohio. pick you up on that. Yes, or Ohio. Hopefully I'm, Ohio. I'm game. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, the the contrast that when you have people who believe in you and you have permission to fail, it's different. And when you don't see that and you don't have models, and I recognize that growing up in an apartment complex, the only thing that I ever wanted was a good job. That's all I ever saw anybody want. All they wanted was like, can I just get steady work? And Mm -hmm. that was what they wanted more than anything. So that's the only vision you have. And I don't know that people recognize when you're surrounded by that. And in a lot of these cases, you're surrounded by poverty and people are just trying to figure out how to make it to the next day or the next week. There's not this vision that that you can do anything or be anything that you want to be because you don't see anybody who does that. You see right. exactly right. the opposite. A lot of our guys say the only thing I wanted to be was rich and I didn't know how to be, except for that they do see drug dealers rolling around in these super fancy cars and stuff. They don't realize how fleeting that is before you get caught and then go to prison. Yeah, not a great long-term plan. Right. There's a a guy named Jordan Peterson. He's Canadian. You know who he is? Uh, No, but I'm Canadian, if that helps. Yeah, I think so. It means you know more about him. His name's Jordan (laughs) Peterson. He's got a new book called 12 Rules for Life, and it's sort of like understanding how to deal with the chaos that's life. And in it, he's got this chapter about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he uses it to explain that it's the story of knowledge and of us gaining consciousness as a species. So now we're conscious, and that's a dramatic shift from every other animal on the planet. They don't have the same level of consciousness. I think some have more consciousness than we give them credit for, but that's because I'm an animal lover and especially dogs who are pure loves. That's my favorite thing. But it also gave us at the same time our self-consciousness and shame. It gave us this ability to feel a sense of shame that no other animal feels ashamed of themselves in the same way that we do. So I want to talk about forgiveness. And what I'm most interested in here is not forgiving people who have been convicted of crimes, although I think that's a good idea. And I'm more interested in you and the story where you send a letter to seven people 
confessing all of your deepest, darkest, most shameful in your mind. I'm going to call them sins because I don't have a better word for it right here. That works. And then yeah, you're like, you'll take sins. Good. And then the response from the group, I want you to share the response that you got because universally there was only one response that you got from seven different people who you gave the same letter to. And then I want you to, if you will, talk about what that did in giving you the ability to forgive yourself. Sure. That's a big question. I know. So I didn't say this was going to be easy. I just said we were going to have a podcast. Hey, well, all right. Thanks. Thanks for the no disclaimer, sort of. So I think people have always thought that I was a, an open and authentic person. And I like to think that I am too. But before my resignation from my first organization, I would say that I always felt oppressed or like I was suffocating under a level of shame because I, I said that 95% of my life I would talk about with pretty much anybody. And I called my most shameful crap my last 5%. And I don't know if it was 5% or 1% or whatever, but I called it my last 5%. And it's stuff that I don't know. I had always thought about like stuff that I've always regretted and some things, most of these things I had never shared with anyone or I'd never shared it in its entirety with people. It's the stuff that ate me alive and frankly made me not want to live a lot of times and made me hate my guts. And I would pound my brain with messages like, you suck. You're a loser. You're not going to make it. I told you so. Like all that kind of negativity. And so, yeah, one day I wrote up a Word document and I vomited verbally my seven pages of crap of stuff that I was ashamed of. And it felt so heavy to me. And I was also so tired of not being known. And I felt like I was not known and loved for who I was, even my best friends or my closest people. So the seven people that I sent it to were people who were really mostly who were like the closest people to me in my life. And Since I had been leading this organization for five years, and when people would hear about the work that I would do, they would say, wow, you're so amazing, and you're so great. And every time I would hear that, I would be telling myself in my head, like, I'm a fraud. Like, if only you knew the real me, I'm not great. And I wasn't able to receive a lot of these other pieces of me. So I started, after I wrote the document, password protected it, the first person that I chose to send it to was a person that... I thought would probably be the harshest with me because there was a part of me, and I think that there's a part of us when we're ashamed, it feels good in a way when we get what we know we deserve. And so the person I started with was a a pastor who's well-known and who I respected at the highest level. And I actually didn't know him that well. I knew him just just enough. And I asked him in advance, I said, hey, I've written up seven pages of my deepest dirt. I'm drowning in it. Can I send it to you? And if I do, will you read it? And he said, yes. And I couldn't believe that I was even doing this. I was at a point where I was so unhappy and so ashamed in my life that I didn't want to live anymore. And so I thought that if I actually sent this off, I thought that if he like gave me the lashes that I deserved, that could be the end of it for me. And I think I kind of wanted that. I wanted to have no more hope. I wanted someone else to tell me what a piece of crap I was so I could end it all. I sent this pastor my email, and it took him, I think, 15 minutes or 30 minutes to read it. And during that time when he read it, I really wanted to die. 
it was one of the most painful short periods of my life because I was awaiting and fear his judgment and for him to tell me what a disgusting human being I am and how rotten I am. I'm, I'm in pain with you just telling the story. If I had, if I had been, you know, Catholic, I don't, can't even imagine how many Hail Marys he would have told me that I would have had or whatever, you know, all my penance. Then into my inbox pops his email and it says, that's what the cross is for. Or he wrote, that's child's play. That's what the cross is for. And I read it over and over again. And I was like, wait, this guy didn't read my email. This is impossible. It's nine words. Um, yeah. It, it just. In response to I, I seven, seven pages. pages. Yeah. Exactly. And like, I almost felt like, is he making light of everything that I just like, how can he so easily just, I felt forgiven by him. It was very hard to receive when I had been beating myself up for all of my life for someone who I held in the very highest esteem, someone who I perceive as being so holy and amazing, for him to say, that's child's play. It, was, it didn't feel like child's play to me. And what I realized from that is that maybe this whole story that I was making up in my head about what I had done, I feel like I, I shame myself more than other people shame me. And I've learned this with the people that I serve too. What we do usually it stinks the worst to us. And it, it's so, especially when it's secretive, when it's secretive, it carries that much more weight. It, it takes up that much more mind share and shame thrives in secrecy. So I thought that what he wrote me back, I mean, it was one of the most like cleansing, forgiving, things I'd experienced in my life, but I was like, well, maybe I just got lucky that one. So I, I decided to, I made a list of the other six people and two of them were like my best friends who had known me for so many years. And I sent it to these other six people and I said, here's like the crap of my life. I know that I don't need to tell you this stuff, but I'm tired of feeling unknown. And I just, so I'm sending it to you because if, if we're going to be this close, like I want you to know the real me. And every one of them wrote back, like, you did not need to send this to me. I love you unconditionally. Like, you're an amazing person. Why are you beating yourself up over this stuff? And I have forgiven myself. I've forgiven myself fully. Sometimes I have to reaffirm that forgiveness, even today. But them knowing and accepting and loving me, and I've never sent that document to anyone since. I'm remarried now. I didn't even show it to my husband. I I haven't hidden things from him, but... You know, I think that when we keep these secrets in the closet, they can eat us alive. And that's what was happening for me. And sharing it with people made me feel less bad or less dirty or less sinful or whatever whatever word you want to use for it. It made me feel accepted and known and loved and beautiful. In spite God. of your past decisions. Yeah. And that's so, the point. And, and for the record... I got to read this note. I got to read I, this. It's got to be so good. I'm afraid I get it and be like, that's not much. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, you know what? Now that I think back on that document, it really was child's play. Yeah. yeah. It, it really was child's yeah, play. Yeah, but not to but you at that time. Not at the time. People are so ashamed. I'll tell you this. I just right up, right before speaking with you, I got off the phone with a Defy donor. So she's been a donor for a while, a very generous one, and she's never come to prison with me. 
And she said, I really need to have a confidential call with you. There's a reason that I've never come to prison. I, I can only have, it needs to be a private conversation, yada, yada. We get on the phone and she tells me, I don't know how old this woman is now. She's in her 40s, I think. In her 20s, she got arrested once and she wasn't charged with anything. She was just arrested one time. But her voice, when she was telling me about this arrest, she was in panic. And she's clearly been eaten alive by her shame over this for, I've known her for a year and a half now or something like that. And she finally just came out of the closet. And I basically told her, I said, that's child's play. <laughs> yeah. You know, I said, yeah. like, seriously, you can come to prison. We About a third of our volunteers who come to prison have been arrested before. And they let you back inside. But... I am imagining how she's been beating herself up over, and she didn't even tell me what she'd been arrested for, and I don't care. It was yeah. in her 20s. You know, but the shame that we have is a story in our own head a lot of the times. How old were you when you forgave yourself? I was 31. That's still I'm pretty 40 good. That's now. pretty good. I know. I read the book. Yeah. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you for reading it. Yeah. We're going to have a whole bunch of people read it, and I'm going to make a bulk order because the money goes to Defy. Right, 100% of it goes yeah. to support And you can program. thank and Seth Godin for this, for doing such a good job sending it to people like me. Seth Actually, he, he gave me the pro printer. My publisher, we're very spoiled. Yeah, he brought me a copy of the galley. I mean, I have it right here, and it, it was not what I expected. It was like this, with my name tag on the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> Seth is... As I say in the acknowledgments of my book, he's the ultimate generous hustler. And no doubt about to it. see the way that he cares about our, our mission and the way that he cared about me through the process of writing the book, it was a very gut-wrenching process to put this stuff down on paper. I cried every day that I wrote it because I share my story. I share the stories of our brave EITs. There's going to be people I, who cry when they read it. There's a zero doubt in my mind. And you're when you read this, you are going to feel something. It's impossible not to. Well, and I think part of the reason that people sometimes people cry with empathy toward others, but it's also if you read it, it's, it's about your second chance or why and how to give a second chance to the person who has hurt you. Maybe it's your brother, maybe it's your ex boyfriend. And I run Defy, and we're an entrepreneurship program, but if there's one message I could get out there to the world, it's about forgiveness, and it's about losing your shame, because when we don't, we live in the past. And so many people are not physically incarcerated in prison, but they live in this mental prison of shame and unforgiveness. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a good part of this experience. My dad left when we were... I was seven. Mom had four kids by herself, and I remember... I'm close with my dad now. We have a great relationship, but it's only because my mom never let me harbor any anger or hatred. She never let it. So when he wouldn't show up at a birthday or something and I would be upset, she would she would be like, nope, you can't do that. You're not allowed. I was never allowed to feel sorry for myself and I was never allowed to harbor any anger or hatred. So I forgave him really early on. I forgave him long before he forgave himself because, you know, he sent me letters and stuff later on. But I think it is, it's critical that you set that stuff down, but it's hard to do. And especially if you don't have a model where you can understand how to do it, it's a heavy, heavy thing to carry around for your can whole I life. Can I ask you about that real sure. quick? You can ask anything so, you want. We arranged yeah, okay. this before. You, you said to... you were allowed to ask questions. So. All right. So when you said that she didn't allow you to yeah. harbor oh, yeah. the negative feelings, we can't control our feelings, right? So if you feel angry, 
we can't control what we feel. We can control how we act on them. So what did you do when you felt disappointed or when you felt angry? Literally, right now, I mean, and I've never said this to anybody, but because you're you, we're talking about this on my podcast, which we shouldn't be doing, but I'm okay now. And you're smiling at me. So there's makes it even worse. I'm defying the odds (laughs) right now. I just, I repressed them. So I repressed them so much so that right now I'm a slightly older than you by a decade. And I, the last time I cried, I was 12. Mm. That's 38 mm. years. So I, I put this protection on so that I wouldn't be hurt and so mm. that nothing could hurt me. And that, that's what I did. That's a 12 or 13-year-old, and that was a really good idea at the time. It worked really well. Now I'm mm-hmm. a professional speaker, and I need to emote to do my job. So emoting is part of it, but I don't have a great, I mean, I, I spent my whole life not ever letting anybody know my emotions. So I took acting classes and the acting teacher said to me, you know, when you're acting, we're supposed to know what you're feeling just by looking at your face. And I said, I spent my whole life making sure no one ever could do that. And they said, you're a really terrible actor. <laughs> and that's, that's how it goes. But I, I just repressed it. For many, many years. Still still do to at some level. So you don't need to answer this because this is your podcast, but I'll tell you what we do at Defy is most of our EITs also repress their pain for all these years. And yeah. I, so at, at Step to the Line, I ask the question, Step to the Line, if you taught by the age of 18 that it's better to keep your mouth shut and keep your emotions to yourself. And they're all at the line. And then I say... So where do those emotions go? Do they just disappear? And they're all shaking their heads no. And I say, well, how do they end up coming out later? And they yell out violence, mm-hmm. depression, drugs, incarceration, you know, all of these negative things. And that's why at Defy, we do a lot of emotional healing work. And the guys that I work with, just like you, they put up these big walls to protect themselves from pain. And I always ask the question, how's that wall working out for you? Because I don't know that walls stop us from feeling more pain. It just keeps it inside. It keeps it inside, hopefully. But then I ask, think about the last time that your anger chose for you. Like, why does road rage happen in our country? Is it really because a guy cut you off that you want to get out and kill him? Or is it because you have all this repressed anger and then it bursts at any moment you're walking around like a a ticking bomb and the next person that pisses you off depending on how tremendous that pain is but the other thing with the walls is that people are going to hurt us and the main way to not get hurt by other people with these walls is to separate us from community but if we have walls that we put up with our children or with our spouses or with other relationships, we're hurt in community, but we're also healed in community. So at, at Defy, we do a lot of crying, tearing down of these walls. Well, look, okay, just, just so that we're clear here, I work with some of the toughest individuals in, in this country. I work at a lot of maximum security prisons and these tough guys, I will tell you what is so brave about them is that they are willing Reluctantly, sometimes, just like you would be, I can see it in your face right now, <laughs> that they are reluctantly willing, but they are courageous enough to be able to face this stuff for one reason. It's because we want a better future than we've had in the past. And we recognize that if we don't get some healing, that our past 
is likely to repeat itself. Mm -hmm. Because that big ball of anger and hurt and resentment and vengeance, it's consuming, just like shame is consuming. I got one thing that saved me from all that, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a minute, because I want to weave this into three things that we still have to talk about. Number one, we have to talk about hope, because it figures so prominently in the book. I think we have to touch that for sure. We also have to talk about vision and this idea that I can have a better future and calling somebody who's been convicted of a crime and behind bars as the CEO of their life, I think is something that's like, wait a second, what? What are you saying? Yeah. You know, I'm a prisoner in prison, cat. Do you understand? I'm not the CEO of anything. And that mindset shift to me, that vision of look what we're doing and look at what other people are already doing, having come through the program. And the success stories in there are amazing, too. When you read the book and you read the success stories, it's just, I mean, it's mind-blowing. These are true entrepreneurs with big businesses doing really great work and giving a lot of people hope and a vision for themselves and a job. And then the third is unconditional love. So let's first talk about hope and how that figures in this equation for you. Hope is everything. If I have no hope for a better future, I am going to give up my, on myself. Suicide takes place when I have zero hope left. If I have an ounce of hope, I might be able to put one foot in front of the other, even if I feel depressed. But if I have hope that some action is going to lead to something. And so we bring hope and we create hope. And I, I spend a lot of my life, the majority of my days, in some of the most hopeless of circumstances or places. Prison um, is, is not considered a place where hope exists. That is the end of the line, right? Yeah, but I mean, you know, in, in most people's minds. In most people's minds. And for example, we even have a program in solitary confinement at Pelican Bay State Prison. And one of our graduates did 32 years in the shoe solitary. And, um, and I, was, I was just there recently and I was speaking with a guy named William and he's 22 years old and he's in the shoe. And I said, how long have you been locked up? And he said, 10 years. And I said, what? You're 22? And he said, yeah, I'm 12. And I go to the cell right next to his. And that guy was 29. And I asked him how long he'd been locked up. 17 years. Same thing. So how these guys still have any hope? They have almost no hope. But this is one of the reasons why I love working with them is that when we come in and I intentionally target some of the most underserved, most remote, most pain in the butt locations to get to, their families have given up on them. But then when we bring our program and our resources, I look them in the eye and I tell them, you matter. I see you. I believe in you. And I'm not Pollyanna about this. I don't even know your story. The reason I believe in you is because I have seen thousands of men and women and youth before you move forward and build a beautiful future. You cannot even imagine right now, you probably don't have the picture in front of you of what it can look like, but I'm telling you, we can get there. You need to trust the process. You need to choose to invest because if you're lazy, get out. If you're a criminal, get out. I don't advocate for criminals. I advocate for people who did criminal things in their past. So if you were acting criminally up until last night or even this morning before you showed up here, 
fine. I don't like your past. You don't like your past. But I'm here for you if you are sick and tired of getting counted six times a day and showering with other dudes every single day and getting dehumanized every single day. I think you're worth more than that. Do you? And they respond. And they are so coachable and they are so deeply respectful and they apply their everything to learning. So if you come inside with us, people are scared all the time because of what you see in the movies or in the news about people with criminal histories. And what you'll encounter is, I'm not making this up, every single prison that I go to across the country, I see the same thing. People who have just enough hope to be there and who are so thankful that others would come in and look them in the eyeballs. I want to talk about vision next because the fact that I'm locked up from 12 to 29, whatever the case may be, and then I have this woman come in and she's going to tell me that she cares about me and that if I want something, I could have a catering firm with 20 employees doing an incredible business. That would be the furthest thing from my mind is that there's these now... What is it? Thirty five hundred people? Is it more than at that this now? point? We've we've served close to five thousand now. Five, so five thousand, five thousand people who are now gainfully employed. Many of them running their own business. Some of them well, working for people yeah, who. To, to be clear, like we've served that many inside, and I think like almost eight hundred have been released from prison okay. at this point. Yeah, but the but stories yes, so in the, the book, though. Up, I mean, you're you're yeah. looking at. Somebody, the, the 20 employees for the, the gentleman that's running the catering company all also came out of the program, or many of them yeah. did. Yeah, that's and a out, big, of, out of our released people, 95% of them are employed, and 200, nearly 200 have started their companies. So, yes, they have no excuse not to succeed if they're with Defy. But you, you look at this and you think, I would have never guessed that as for me, locked up, I'm thinking, I would have never guessed that's possible for me, but now I have a vision. Like, wait a second, right. I can still right. have the same life that this kind of person has, and he or she was where I was before? Yeah. That's got to be exactly. mind-blowing for them that you can say, listen, we're going to bring in people here who were where you were not that long ago, by the way, and now that they've been released, they're here and they're gainfully employed and they have this life that you could have, but you have to be the CEO of your life. So you, right. you're installing a vision on someone who never saw anything that looks like this. Right. And that, that vision is everything. And I regularly bring in formerly incarcerated people who are their role models so that, you know, I'm like, don't take this crazy white girl's opinion about it. You know, like, look at these guys. And out of the hundred courses that they get inside prison, about a third of them are taught by formerly incarcerated people who have success stories. So that they're seeing it every single day. Not only can you make it, there's no reason not for you to make it. You just have to commit. You have to take responsibility. You have to take accountability for your past. We're going to reconcile your past so we can transform your future. And we make them work their butts off. This is not some little cakewalk program. They're working for it 20 hours a week. Our, our people average an eighth grade education, but when they finish, they earn a Baylor University MBA program certificate. Wow. It's the biggest accomplishment of their lives. And then when people start achieving things, like little steps, like they finish another course, they get through another event. They're, they are so terrified 
when people like you come into prison. They're like, how do we talk to those outsiders? And they ask me that. I like that. But the more that they achieve, the more that they believe in this vision. It's that a vir- they can, virtuous can actually cycle. I mean, success yeah. leads to more success leads to more success. Right. It's just What's like in- any salesperson, right? Like if you succeed with selling on you a get- small level, then you actually start to believe that you can do it on a bigger your, level. Your confidence goes up. What, yeah. What's interesting to me about this is I tell my three children the greatest adversity they have in their life is that they haven't had enough adversity. And Maybe you ought to throw some their way. I do all the time. I make them get into <laughs> all kinds of stuff that makes them uncomfortable. I want them to be very uncomfortable because it serves Bring you. them to prison. <laughs> They're 18, uh, to, right? To visit. Yeah, to visit. Yeah, yeah. Just hold on to the visitor badge and you'll be fine. If if you lose a visitor badge, they have plenty of extra bunks for you to stay the night. <laughs> I don't know if I need to do that. Everyone I'm should playing. spend a little time behind bars, right? Yes, yes. Just um, a little bit of time, yes. The... Third thing that I want to talk about is I think when you ask, why am I on a different path where I could have gone another direction and had plenty of opportunities to, if I had to attribute it to one thing, it would just be unconditional love. And that's what I got from my mom was just unconditional love with a very, she worked very hard on me. I mean, very, very hard. I was not an easy kid. And she never gave up, but she always had this unconditional love. So that's the part that I was never missing. And I noticed that William, who lived behind me, is in San Quentin, and that's what he was missing. He didn't Mm. have the unconditional love. And his life took a very, very different direction than mine. At some point, the paths went in very different directions, but he didn't have that. He didn't have anyone there. And I think that that's one of the giant differentiators in in how some people's lives go when they don't have that. So speak to that, too. So I think unconditional love is uh, that's as good as it gets, but it's very rare to find unconditional love from anybody because most of our guys did not have unconditional love and were betrayed even by people that they thought they could trust the most, like their partners and their criminal activities sometimes sold them out so they get less time or whatever. When you're betrayed or not properly loved by people, you can, you can automatically go to, I trust no one ever again. And I'm glad that you had the benefit of this unconditional love. And I can see how that would shape you to realize that you are lovable no matter what. At Defy, I don't know that I would say that we have unconditional love for our EITs, but one of our values is love hard. We love them even when it's inconvenient and annoying and frustrating. But what we are also very clear about is there are consequences for your actions and you will be held accountable at the highest level. So if you get into Defy, you will have tremendous access, opportunities, resources. You will have people who believe in you. But what I tell them is I'm not going to be a fraud. I tell the world that you are everything I told you already, right? That you are respectful, that you are grateful, that you are courteous, that you are hungry, So if you're still a con, get out. We're not working with you. And I'm a white woman who looks, I don't know what I look like, but... You look like Sandra uh, Bullock. Like there, thank you, sir. But at first, sometimes they think that I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't have to be the one to find them, though. If, If the correctional officials see that they're still running an illegal side hustle or if they're being disrespectful, they're kicked out. They're absolutely kicked out. Can they get a second chance then? Yeah, they can. So you, you we, might we have, have unconditional love, standards. but the program comes with conditions. 
Yeah, opportunities come with conditions sure. and we can X ourselves out of opportunities all the time. So unconditional love is great. I think that's yeah. what I think that's what your story is about and in my view I think it's what you gave yourself. Yeah, I think it's something that we can give ourselves, yeah. right? If you're into God, then God can give you that. Maybe if you have like amazing parents, maybe your parents will give you unconditional love. Maybe your significant other will, but it's I think unconditional love is very rare because I when people tell me that their spouse loves them unconditionally, I'm like, really? If you cheated on them 850 times, your spouse would still love you unconditionally? All right. There's all Great, kinds. Good for you. There's all you kinds know? of conditions. And uh, right. I know right. I have, the whole, I have exactly. the whole stay married plan, and there's a bunch of rules on the stay married plan. That's right. That's right. There are consequences. <laughs> there's no doubt about it. <laughs> I think consequences are part of love. They're part so. of it. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. I appreciate you being here. The book is called A Second Chance. And it comes out on February 27th? Correct. I'm going to time the release of this podcast to go along with the book. And where do people go to buy the book, first of all? Amazon. And it's also offered through Audible. Okay. And how do they buy bulk copies of the book? They can write me at cat at defyventures.org, cat at defyventures.org. And I will... I will not personally respond to that one, but I'll make sure it gets fielded by one of our staff members if you're interested in bulk orders. Yeah, and all of the proceeds from the book go to Defy to help you to continue to do the work that you're doing. And uh, if I know Seth, he'll have something to say about bulk buys. And, you know, he's the best in the world at bulk buys. So we'll figure out what that is, but we'll send people there to pick up bulk buys. Where do they find out more about you and Defy Ventures? And how do they spend a little bit of time behind bars? So thank you for asking these questions. So you can go to defyventures.org. We're a nonprofit, so it's not .com, defyventures.org. And on our website, you can learn about volunteer opportunities that range from being a mentor to a released person to coming to prison. And we currently operate in New York, Connecticut, Colorado, Nebraska, and all over the state of California. And we're growing rapidly. I hope that by the time I'm 53, we're in every major prison in the U.S. So we'd love to have you. You can provide a scholarship for an EIT, which is $500 or $42 a month. There are many ways you can talk to us about wanting to hire our released men and women who are amazing. And that's how we keep our 95% employment rate. And uh, since you said that you want to come to prison, maybe at some point you can tell your audience to join you on whatever trip you, you choose to come on with me. That would be great. I'll do it. And we'll if you see come if to can. prison, I'll tell you this. You're not coming on a tour. You're going to roll up your sleeves. Every minute of your time will make a difference. You are going to be coaching and mentoring or serving as a judge in our Shark Tank pitch competition, and it will change your life. You're not. You're also not coming in there to like save my guys or our women. You will learn so much about yourself. Some of our volunteers have called it free therapy, but it's not that free because I'm going to ask you for your everything after after you come one time, then I'm going to ask you to stay involved forever to keep making a difference. I hope that coming to prison or reading the book serves the readers as well and how to get your own second chance. I defy you to read the book and not have tears in your eyes while you're doing it. I mean, it, 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 it will move you. It is a moving piece of work for sure. And it, it is about forgiveness and human compassion and unconditional love and second chances and all kinds of great ideas that's in there. It's a wonderful book. You did a great job. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me.
Now you see why I didn't feel the need to give Kat a giant introduction at the beginning of this podcast. She's amazing. Her work is amazing. Her new book, A Second Chance, for you, for me, and for the rest of us is amazing. You're going to love the stories. You're going to love her story. Go pick it up at Amazon.com now or Barnes & Noble and... Do check out all her links in the show notes and make sure you reach out to Cat and Defy Ventures. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I publish daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino where I publish almost daily. And if you love this episode, go out and leave me a review on iTunes. That helps other people find this show. Thanks so much for being here. And until next time, I'll see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.